To answer is human, to question is divine. Welcome to the world of the Hidden Gateway, an exhilarating podcast exploring the concepts humans have been struggling with since the dawn of existence, such as, who are we? Is there such a thing as good and evil, or are they arbitrary constructs? Does the paranormal exist? How can we evolve to a higher state? Can our mind influence what we term as reality? Providing a transcendental approach combined with hard-nosed humanistic analysis, we invite you on a journey to question your worldview in this theater of life. Join our host, Justin Williams, as he explores the outer realms of faith, the supernatural, human potential, and even our concepts of the universal creator with a fascinating array of guests. This is the unseen world, magical, mysterious, and mystical, where your only limitation is your imagination. This is The Hidden Gateway. Welcome back to the Hidden Gateway Podcast. I am your host, Justin Williams. Now, before we get started with this week's show, I just want to ask if you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe to the show on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. This will be a tremendous help for us to reach an even larger audience across all platforms. As always, your support is greatly appreciated, and I thank you all. And today we are happy to welcome Daniela Messonette Young on the show. Daniela is the author of Uncultured and a scholar of cults, extreme groups, and extremely bad leadership. Daniela was raised in the religious sex cult, The Children of God, before escaping and moving to America at the age of 15. She put herself through high school and graduated as college valedictorian before becoming commissioned into the U.S. Army as an intelligence officer, making the rank of captain. She became one of the first women in the U.S. Army history to conduct deliberate ground combat operations when she volunteered to serve on a female engagement team and received the Presidential Volunteer Service Award. Daniela, welcome to the Hidden Gateway Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. All right. And hey, like I told you before, we hit record. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I think this is going to be a very important show, and you're going to deliver a message that is very important that a lot of people need to hear. Um, as we know, human trafficking, specifically child sex trafficking, is a multi-billion dollar business worldwide. And you have experienced firsthand in that world as a youth, from your youth, from your childhood, you escaped it, you worked through maybe some issues that was from the result of that. And here you are today, you have a book, you had a successful military career, and um, just hats off, praises to you. Thank you for your experience and being here, delivering the good word that people need to hear. Yeah, thanks again for you know, giving me the opportunity to be here today. Absolutely. So, hey, let's get right into it. Tell me about your your history, your past. Tell me about where you were born and uh, things that you went through uh, being in the um, Children of God cult. Yeah, so I was, so let me just give you my sort of two-sentence history of the Children of God, which is, you know, 1968, so right in your, your hippie era. And suddenly this sort of failed preacher, but successful alcoholic, you know, finds his place recruiting hippies on the beach to like serve Jesus and 
you know, believe that he's the prophet of God um, for the end of days. And he recruits very rapidly, you know, ten, gets to 10,000 members quite quickly. Um, and then you have Jonestown and then you have the Mansons, right? Which uh, one of the Manson girls just got out of jail this week. Um, and so our founder kind of clued into that and said, hey, the Lord has revealed to me that we should all go abroad to developing nations. Um, so, you know, a couple of things here. It's easier, as you mentioned, the international trafficking, right? It's easier to hide from the FBI when you move all over the world and go by fake names, which was, you know, the, their Bible names, their cult names. Um, and also, you know, our cult had a lot of success recruiting in some places like India and Brazil, where you are literally recruiting people out of slums into, in many ways, a better life. And so once you're in the cult and the logic is fully broken down, it's still harder to leave because what are you going back to? Right. Um, so my grandfather joined the cult in the 70s and he was educated, a CPA. And so he quickly became important in the running of the money and the leadership. Um, and my mother was, was one of the first children born. Um, and Children of God is the cult that is famous for advocating both religious prostitution and what I describe as pedophilia for God. Um, the reason that they call us a sex cult is basically that David Berg, our prophet, took your sort of run-of-the-mill controlling Christian evangelicalism and he just flipped one thing, which was control of sex from purity culture to pedophilia culture is actually in many ways not that far of a step or not that opposite of a thing. Um, it's about control, it's about power, and it's about, in some ways, sexualizing children. Um, and, you know, right now we have this uh, shiny happy people documentary uh, going bonkers about some of the, the Christian evangelicalism and the Duggars. And you kind of, you see this link between the controlling purity cultures and the pedophilia come out. Um, and our founder just did it out loud. And, you know, one of the things I often talk about is that as Americans, we feel like when we see extremism, we will recognize it and we will walk away kind of like it's a line in the sand. Um, and everybody thinks that they wouldn't join a call. And everybody thinks that when their guru starts saying that, you know, abusing children is okay, they would walk away. Um, and I'm from the 10,000 people that didn't. So perhaps unsurprisingly, when my mom is, you know, my mom is 13, is she's married off to the prophet in a whole child ceremony from ages of 14 to three, um, including this man's daughter and granddaughter. You know, so this was, I'm talking like real, real cults, right? Um, and then unsurprisingly, by 14, she is pregnant um, by a man older than her father, um, another one that runs the money, and that baby is me. So, you know, today I'm 36, my mom is 51, um, and ended up having eight children. Um, seven, seven of them in rapid succession. Um, I have 25 siblings in cult math, as I say. 
And, you know, by, by the time I came around, what was interesting was this, this cult got smart. So at some point they stopped publicly being a sex cult and they just became a child trafficking organization for childhood entertainment videos. So my childhood was actually a mix of like growing up in a religious prison camp, but also being like little apocalypse Lindsay Lohan on cult childhood entertainment videos that were then sold all around the world. And like, I promise you, there is a video of me at 10 years old. I can send you the YouTube link. Me and six other white children rapping apocalypse Bible verses. Um, yeah, yeah. In downtown Rio. <laughs> now, where were you born? Were you born in Rio? No, I was, so I was born in the Philippines. In, you know, to a 15-year-old American girl in the Philippines. So I was like an American citizen born abroad, but I never lived in America. So I lived in Asia. So Philippines and Japan for the first three years ended up then in a commune to Peru, to Brazil, where I was for a decade. Um, and then my teenage years in Mexico. Um, so really some of my biggest culture shocks were like when I was 14, we came to the U.S. for the first time. Um, and it's a chapter in the book called Coming to America. And like, I'd never been surrounded by English before because we grew up in Brazil. And, you know, I'd never been surrounded by so many white people. It was so loud. It was it was a very intense experience um, because also we became quite an America-hating cult. So, you know, one of my chapters is called Babylon the Whore, um, which is what our prophet called America, um, you know, for rejecting him. And, and cult leaders always need to really ramp up this sense of persecution. Um, but also it was a way to control his followers and keep them out of America because it's much harder to just get up and leave when you live in a commune in Brazil with your 17 children than it is if you're in the US and you can just take your kids and drive to your parents. Um, so very, very much similar to Jonestown. Um, the geographic isolation was actually part of it in many ways. Um, but you also have the added benefit of these happy, shiny, white or mixed race children that are good performers that you can trot out all over the world to raise money, help you recruit people but also in our very being, just defend against the idea that we are a cult. Because one of the most you know, pervasive ideas is that cult members are brainwashed automatons. Um, and this idea really helps cults survive and thrive because they meet someone like me. And you know, one of the most common things I get told is, you don't seem like a cult survivor. And I'm always like, really? How many do you know? How many do you know? Um, <laughs> Because it's interesting because I also get told I don't look like a, a veteran quite a lot, you know, so I, I make a lot of parallels in in the book. Um, you know, so so my childhood was this mix of I just say, like, growing up, I mean, the line I use in the book is I was born a soldier. Right. And so in my prologue of Uncultured, I'm standing there in basic training and they have you do this exercise where you hold this 50 pound duffel bag above your head for like three hours. Um, and I already know enough at this point to have the realization like, oh, I've just joined another cult. Um, and now with all the education I have, I can explain that 
the important thing about this event that they do. And it's on like your very first day of basic training. Um, but they've already had you for a week in a holding cell called reception, which is literally like being in process to prison. So you've already had all of the what have I done with my life moments, you know, and this is when they take the, the men's hair and all of that. But then you go out and you do this thing. And there's two things. It's impossible. Like no one can just hold 50 pounds above their head for three hours, you know, so like it's intended to break you down. But it's also irrational. And there's studies that show that the first time you do an irrational behavior for a group, you are so much more likely to do irrational things in the future without complaining. And, you know, so even in the book, I kind of it's, it's this moment of like, you're either going to go through it or go home. Right. Because and then once you go through this duffel bag event, like now you're committed and now the training starts to make you a soldier. Um, so I have this realization like, oh, I just joined another cult. Um, and the funny thing is like 22 year old me at that time, I'm like. I'm not necessarily scared by that, right? I was like, I'm going to be good at this. Um, okay. I know how to do the group thing. I know how to suppress my individuality for the purpose of the mission, right? Like, I've been in God's army my whole life. Um, and that's literally my book cover is a photo of me at two years old dressed up in tinfoil armor for one of these videos. So child exploitation, um, soldier, you know, and so... And it's funny because I say I see these same echoes in Prince Harry's book of like, you know, going from the royal family to the military, not difficult. And I've now found on my, my TikTok platform that like there are just so many people from high control, high demand religions that go into the military and do very well. Um, and in this way, I actually feel like cult survivors, veterans and Prince Harry have a lot in common. <laughs> yep, yep. I wrote a, I wrote an essay about that once. Um, but yeah, and so I say like I was kind of like prepared for these these parallels and these these sort of cult military things. Um, what I was not prepared, the parallels I was not prepared for was the the sexism and the sexual violence. Uh, toward me or that I was going to experience as a woman in uniform to be such a similar culture as what I experienced in the sex cult. Um, and the most so, similar thing about all of it was it's happening to all of us, but we don't talk about it. You know, the culture is, the cult is, you don't talk about it. And the culture in America, is, is especially for women, is you leave the military and you don't talk about what happens. Um, and even if you do, you talk about it in a Pentagon-approved voice. Um, and I did not want to do that. <laughs> so, um, you know, I did on the one hand have this like pretty interesting, successful military career. And it is is kind of this this story of success, but also this story of the drive for perfection kind of breaking me. Um, but it's also a parallel look at group behavior and how it works in, you know, maybe a far out cult that you have never imagined. And then the US military that we all know somebody in. Um, 
Yeah. Wow, those similarities are something else. I personally would have never thought about that, right? I mean, I haven't researched cults a lot, but I know a lot about the military, right? I come from a military family. And hearing you say what you've said, it makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. It definitely makes sense. That's that's something else. So And you know, we we know that the modern military, like modern day basic training was invented by psychologists that studied abuse. Um, because how to break someone down and build them up is a programmatic thing. And what I learned from studying cults is, you know, they're all the same. Like the details are different, but they're all the same. And it's really quite simply that like the way that you control someone is always the same. And coercive control, when it's one-to-one, we call it an abusive relationship. And when it's a group exerting coercive control over individuals, we call that a cult. Um, And so- With with the cult, obviously you were born into that. Regret going into the military? So I don't regret it. Um, it's such an interesting like way that you phrase that because, you know, I told myself I was doing it for whatever reasons, you know, patriotism or because I wanted an intelligence career or to help me pay a little bit of college off. Um, and I told myself kind of this notion for a long, long time. But now looking back, when I look at it, I'm like, oh, no, I joined the army for all the same reasons that my grandfather joined the cult in the 70s, which was, you know, in the in-between time for me. So I'm, I'm 15. I lose everything in my life. I'm excommunicated from the cult and sent to a different country. I literally take a Greyhound box from Guadalajara, Mexico to Houston, where I, my first day of school is... It's like that scene from Mean Girls, you know, and she's just walking and like, I'm in a school of 4,000 students and I've never been in school in my life. You know, I never figure out really how to break into American social life. I'm just too weird and also working too much. And then I go to college and I fall in just being the perfect student. Um, And, you know, perfectionism is often something that we hide in to continue to abuse ourselves after traumatic childhoods. But I didn't know that. I just thought I was fighting for my education. Um, But when I got to, you know, I've been out of my culture for six years. And even though it's horrible and harmful, like, that's where I'm from. I'm from that cult. And my culture's lost to me forever. And I haven't figured out how to really break into American culture. And the idea of signing up to serve for three years... First of all, like I looked so forward to basic training because I could just rest my brain. And, you know, in the army, we say all you have to do to succeed is be in the right place in the right time in the right uniform and never volunteer for anything. Right. So it's like, don't don't stand out. Um, and I was like, you know, the idea of being you're just you're handed a uniform, you're handed a team, colleagues, if not friends you're handed a group that gives you this belonging and this mission um, and something else I've identified about cults, but also the military is it gives you a sense of superiority over other people, right? Cause you are the 1%. And, you know, there's a, I think a certain, I don't know, one of the things when we leave our cults and we actually unpack it is that we learn that 
you don't get to feel 100% right about anything ever. You know, no one's going to give you the clarity that your way of living is the best way. Um, and so realizing that you don't get to feel superior to other people is, I think, an interesting one for people. Um, but I think it's why we also see a lot of people go kind of like I did go cult hopping, which is, you know, and I like I was never a believer in the cults. I felt like just a prisoner of these crazy religious fundamentalists. But I went full in on the army. You know, I mean, you heard the pedigree um, making history. And I was set to prove that, you know, women were as good as men. And I was a true, true believer um, which is something I feel like, like the army is very cultic, but also the way I participated in it was, you know, acting the way I had been programmed, um, which is continuing on this idea of I can just repress myself forever for the good of the mission, for the good of the team. Um, and in the story, uh, you know, we find out that I can't and I break, um, and that's part of it, you know. Now, how long were you in the military? How many years? I was in the military for six and a half years. Okay, um, six and a half. Yeah. So, Not a, by the time you got to Houston, it was what, 14, did you say? Or 15? No, I was 15, and it was in 2003. Okay, so you, had, you were out of the cult by that time? Yes. By the time you got to yes. Now, how did you, how did you get out? So, I, I got myself excommunicated. <laughs> So, okay, so the story I want to tell you is about what I call my crack in the brainwashing. Um, and this is the, the Babylon the Whore chapter in the book, which is the first time I see live television on, like, live news. I'm 14 years old, and the date is September 11th, 2001. Um, and, like, I don't even understand what live news is. Just to explain it to you, like, I have to comprehend first, like, this is happening in a real place. Um, and, you know, our people were sort of praising God for his promised judgment on evil America, Babylon the whore. Um, and I'm 14 and I'm glued to the television where I hear them start talking about the terrorists, the attackers, and I hear the term religious extremists. And I kind of have this moment of you know, are we the bad guys, right? Are we the religious extremists? Um, because we are here celebrating the death of, you know, what turns out to be 3,000 people. Um, and so, you know, these days I have this like 10-part definition of a cult. <laughs> Step number two, and part of the only way to explain cults is all the members have this sacred assumption. And under the sacred assumption, you can justify anything. So as long as you believe that David Berg was the prophet of God, you would accept and justify the pedophilia, right? In Nexium, that call, it was that Keith Raniere was the smartest man on earth. Um, and I say, you know, in the U.S. Army, it's maybe the idea of dying for the flag, um, that it's worth it. And under that sacred assumption, you don't question a lot of things. So even for me growing up and, you know, the childhood is very intense and traumatizing and at no point do I want to be there. And at every point I know I'm going to leave, but it has never occurred to me that these people are not good people. You know, it just, it's just, they're not for me. 
And I, as a teenager, I'm struggling like, like many people do under religious extremism with my feelings of guilt for not belonging or for not, you know, like being able to get with the program. Um, but for me, after 9-11, I was like, oh, no, I'm out of here. Um, and specifically, I need to be out of here before the age of 16, at which point I am considered a full adult and I'm now expected to have sex without protection um, with anyone, basically, who asks. And by the way, keeping them pregnant is a way that cult leaders keep people in cults. Um, and so I definitely knew I didn't want that. Um, so I sort of set about this program to get myself excommunicated. Um, and I knew that if they thought they could save me, they would try. And exorcisms are really not fun. And so I knew I had to break like the worst of crimes, um, which in, in cults is always fellowship with the outsider. Um, and in our case, in the sex cult, this meant sex with the outsider. So I climbed over the commune wall when I was 15 and I went and, uh, you know, fellowshiped with a boy that I knew and then accidentally fell asleep and did not sneak back in. And so then this was, this was the worst of sins. Um, but it was also interesting because it was like they had to excommunicate me. But at some point, they also realized that I was somewhat famous. My family was somewhat famous and important. And I was also the oldest third generation child still in the cult. And so that would be a big deal. And so then they started like hemming and hawing and trying to drug deal with me um, to basically be like, okay, we won't punish you as much, but you have to like overdo your recommitment to the cult. Um, and I, of course, as a 15 year old threatened with losing everything. Um, and these are exit costs that people talk about with cults. If you, if you say to any group, is it a cult? They will say, uh-uh, you're free to leave any time. But exit costs are not necessarily money. It's, you know, for me, it was losing everything I know, um, which psychologists estimate that leaving our high control religions can feel like what we assume death feels like. Um, and so that was, you know, going through that at 15. Um, so I was pretty scared and I was wavering. And at some point, my mom, who was, you know, born and raised in this cult and was still in the leadership of this cult, but I think was starting to try to get away herself. And she took me on this walk outside the commune and she was like, just go. Like, we found a place for you with, you know, it's, it's my stepsister. So my mom is married to this older man and he has a bunch of children that I don't know, but one of them has agreed to take me in. Um, and my mom was like, just go. Um, and I'm very, you know, very grateful to her for that. Um, and then uh, this other figure in the high school years that is super significant is my high school counselor who, you know, I mentioned the school had 4,000 students. There were four counselors. So she had a thousand students. Um, and I think it's important to say that she was a black woman in Houston and, um, all throughout my life, I feel like people have reached out and helped me out and given me opportunities. And as I look back, it has almost always been women of color. Um, and that has been such a significant thing for me. Um, but she read this essay I wrote about growing up in a cult. 
and I was not planning to go to college because of course I didn't, you know, I was, I was working 40 hours a week to put myself through high school. Like I didn't have the resources to go to college. And she was like, oh no, you're going to college. <laughs> she was like, if you can write like this and you have a story like this to tell, like you are going to college. And she put me on, on the track to go to college. Um, but I had started already, like my plan had been, I was going to go into the Marines after high school in order to earn, like I was going to go to college someday. I was, I was determined. Um, and I think like, so I already had like military in my mind. And, um, and then I also got into a pretty toxic relationship in college that ended up as a first husband. And, um, you know, what's interesting about that is uh, cult scholars, we will call abusive relationships one one cults because it's that same you know pattern of control um and so you know unsurprisingly i fall into this toxic relationship but i'm like and he jo he joins the military and i'm like well, i'm not just going to be his like stay at home political wife or you know <laughs> like i i just tried to escape a life like that um so i go into the military and Anyways, I don't know that I answered your question about do I regret it, um, but I would say, you know, it's it's so interesting because everything I have today, this life that I really love and appreciate, you know, ties to my decision to join the military, including the husband that I met over there who is one of the good ones. Um, but do I want my daughter to join? And, and we are seeing this across the board in the country now. So I think everybody knows that re like recruitment is so low with Gen Z that they're calling it a national security crisis. Um, and part of this, I think, is because we're talking about um, things like the rape culture. But the, the largest pool of recruits have always come out of military families like yours. And what you have right now in the country is military veterans like my husband and I telling our daughter and our children and our children's parents friends like no it's not worth it um you know this there's a lot there but you know the forever war the the treatment of veterans all of this stuff is kind it's of it's coming to an interesting head um so as someone me who set out to study culture first but then ended up obviously in cults, but I'm like, you know, this, these cultural problems have been going on in the military for a very, very long time. Um, but we don't talk about it and we don't change it. Um, but, but the first lawsuit ever against the military for sexual assault was won yesterday. Was it? Yes. I heard nothing of that. Um, like said, they suppressed the Yeah. Can I, can I give you this quick history? Is it relevant? Of course. Please, okay. Please do. So there's something called the Ferris Doctrine. And this was the essay I'm telling you that I'm trying to write right now when we started talking. So the Ferris Doctrine says that you cannot sue the military for anything incidental to military service. And these lovely people that run the military have always basically then told us that rape was incidental to military service. Um, and every lawsuit ever has been dismissed under the Ferris Doctrine, um, including there was this documentary called The Invisible War, where they kind of talk about this rape culture problem for the first time. 
It came out in 2011, and it was a, a group that tried the lawsuit and were shut down. So recently, and it was the it was the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, so an Air Force general at the presidential level now, who assaulted a colonel and basically told her she couldn't do anything because of the Ferris Doctrine. Um, and that woman took it all the way. And last year, a male judge, which I love, in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, you know, said the words, rape should not be considered incidental to military service. Nice. So now, and so her lawsuit was, was able to go forward. Um, and I think now there's a potential for the floodgates and maybe a class action lawsuit against the Department of Defense um, on behalf of different elements of the culture around that. Um, Very good. That's all right. Which is, you know, this is <laughs> both with cults, but also I think with any system of power, like the only way you force them to change is by going after the money. Um, so, and you know, what's interesting about the military, like the military that I served in had just sort of kicked DUI culture. Like there was enough people still serving who would say, back in my day, you couldn't make general or sergeant major without at least two DUIs. And then they decided that they were done with that, right? Losing too many soldiers, bad PR, um, alcohol was really in the culture. I mean, still is, but they changed it by doing two things, in my opinion. They made it unexplainable. Nobody's going to say that the alcohol made you do it. And they made it unforgivable. Nobody is going to defend your career. And so now, like in most military towns, of course, you still have DUIs. Like you still have young kids being silly and making poor decisions. But you certainly have a very enforced culture of if you're caught doing this, your career is done and nobody will defend you to the point that, you know, there's this thing in the military called the safety brief where every commander has all of her soldiers in front of her every Friday and says things to them like, don't drink and drive, don't fry bacon naked, don't sleep with other people's spouses. Um, but they don't address, you know, like the rape culture in any way. Um, but you know, this, when you tell a soldier, don't drink and drive every Friday, this reinforces to him that like, this will not be tolerated in this culture. You will not be forgiven if you do this. Um, but, you know, to date, we have not really been willing to address the, uh, the kind of history of, of war and rape and how that ties together. And I think that is something that we see in that culture. Um, and in my opinion, it's very cult-like and it's all sort of, you know, I see these parallels in some ways where I'm like, if, it, if they did it in the cult and they did it in the army, then good or bad aside, it's about programming and influence or power and control. Um, you know, and so I like to, part of what I do every day is I have this TikTok channel where I knit and expose these things about group behavior, you know, just like, like just break out a few things, you know, we can take the the fact that 3,000 cults that we know of have some form of name of the family in their title. And that's what the Children of God rebranded at right before they performed at the White House. Um, wait, 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 wait. wait, wait, wait. <laughs> oh, yes. 
Remember so when I told they, you that they successfully rebranded? In the yeah. 80s, they were known as a sex cult. And in the 90s, they performed not once, but twice at the H.W. Bush White House. Interesting. And because cults are always of, out for political control. Obviously, there's a lot of controversy or not controversy, more like what people would call conspiracy theory in regard to child sex trafficking with um, high ranking individuals within the military, as well as mm-hmm. the government. Uh, we're talking about White House down, you know, uh, so for you to say that they performed twice at the White House, that kind of made my little uh, spidey senses go off kind of yeah (laughs) so there yeah that's interesting that's an interesting and i like i can't speak to what levels of corruption the children of god got to in america but i know in brazil they got very deeply enmeshed with governmental corruption um i saw where you said one time that when you lived in brazil (laughs) that the law enforcement there kind of turned a blind eye for giving women and children for sex is that right yes both both of those things um uh, but mainly the the sex right so the the children of god claims like part of their big rebranding much like the mormons was they claimed they gave up their practices of religious prostitution and this was openly known right they called it flirty fishing they called themselves hookers for god they related it to this verse in matthew where jesus says i will make you fishers of men um, and there was a photo in, and an article about this in Time magazine, right? So they were known as the, the hookers for Jesus, right? Like this was known about the organization. And then again, you know, unsurprisingly, as AIDS is rip, starts ripping through the world, they're like, okay, this is not worth it. And we're getting all this heat. And so they switch to now we don't have sex with anyone outside the organization. Um, We still have forced sort of polyamory within and all of these open sexual beliefs, but now we hide it from the outside world and we program our members and our children to hide it. However, they never stopped. There were certain people, for example, one woman was in a long-term relationship with like eight ch- eight or nine children with a very high-ranking senior police officer in the Brazilian federal police um, who was married and had his whole life and gave many large properties throughout Brazil to the cult. Um, and that was like one of the communes that I, I grow up in that you see me at in the book. Um, and there was a lot of, you know, in, in my case, rumors, or I don't know all the details, but I think there was a lot of back and forth with the government of Brazil and the sex cult. Um, and that we were then allowed to operate fairly innocuously um, because of that. So, Daniela, obviously you went through what you went through as a child, which was horrific. Uh, you know, as a teenager, you moved to America. You're in Houston. After high school, you go to college, you get married, you go into the military. All right. Uh, you're in the military for six and a half years. Mm-hmm. Now, today you're 36. Been through so much, experienced so much. 
when did you find time for you in regards to your healing process? Or is that an ongoing journey? So it's definitely an ongoing journey. And I like how you phrased that question because one of the things, like I was determined that I was not going to write this like overcoming trauma story. Um, it, it is that in a lot of ways. Um, but I think it always felt too trite to me. Like, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, you're so like upright and successful. And I'm like, yeah, but some days I'm not, you know? Um, and so for me, I, you know, I, I fortunately got some, I would say like life saving therapy while I was in the military. Um, mm -hmm. And I was able to do that because they introduced a regulation saying, because you have to report all mental health to uh, your secret clearance. So for most military jobs, if you ever see a therapist, like you basically will lose your job. Um, and this is how something becomes demonized in a culture, of course. Um, and we can't talk about veteran suicides without talking about that. And it's all interrelated. But during my time in uniform, they introduced a regulation that said, if your therapy is because of sexual violence or intimate partner violence, then you don't have to report it to your clearance. Um, and so for me, all of my therapy could be tied to that. Um, and I did make them tie it to that. Um, and in that way, I was able to, as an active duty intelligence officer, get some life-saving mental health treatment when I needed it. Um, but it wasn't till honestly, I wrote this book and I was telling myself, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then I read this book and I was like, oh, that woman is not fine. Um, and I, you know, I started getting therapy and I've been doing that for some years now and it has absolutely made a lot of difference. Um, but also it was a big part of it is what you said about the slowing down, you know, so a couple of things for me, I get, you know, disability money from the US government because of my service and also free education. So I now have a, you know, a degree from Harvard and a yearly paycheck, um, which allows me the time to write and heal and um, slow down. And, you know, I, I heard this great quote recently that we don't, or we know that we are healing when peace and tranquility no longer seems like boredom, right? Like that's when we know we're healing from trauma. And so for me, you know, I got, I, I was also lucky enough to sell the book for a good advance. And so then I had to do, you know, to write it in six months. I was, it was hard. Um, it was a lot. Um, but then I got almost a year while the book was in production, they call it, to really slow down, to do a lot of work. Um, one of the things I realized, both from writing the book and from my master's degree in organizational psychology, where we study a lot of social identity theory and, you know, just theories of how humans behave in groups was realizing that I never got to develop a personal identity um, because that's really the work we're doing from the ages of zero to six is understanding that we're separate beings from our mothers and putting together who we are. And, you know, by definition, and not just in a cult, but in any type of total organization or high demand organization, 
Um, a total organization is where you live and work separate from the rest of the population with other people who are like you. And there's this formal overlay. So the military is a total organization. So is a prison or a mental health uh, facility. Um, but part of the, the deal is you tamp down your individuality for the good of the group. And when we have to do that at really young ages, that affects us kind of forever. Um, so it sounds really funny and weird, but one of the, the big things for me was actually that realization. It was, I don't have a personal identity, right? Like I don't, we talk a lot about sometimes like going back to who you are after coercive control or trauma, but it was like, oh no, I have to figure out basically literally alongside my daughter who is of that age, um, what my identity was. Um, and one of the kind of tangible things I did was I said, like when I sold my book, I was like, okay, I'm an author now, author, independent scholar. So I am going to wear whatever I want every day for the rest of my life. And, you know, really, it has taught me a lot. Um, and part of that was like, you'll see me, I'm always in big earrings, because in the cult, we couldn't wear jewelry in the military, we couldn't wear jewelry. And so like, my earrings are the most important thing I put on every day. Um, it's kind of like my anti anti group behavior thing. Um, right. And it has really helped me. And it's something, you know, many women getting out of the military struggle with this, because now you're a professional aged woman. And you don't know how to dress yourself because you've been not just in a uniform, but in a male uniform in a man's world your whole career. And it's like a really identity searing kind of moment. Um, and so, yeah, that's like, like one of the little things that has made a big impact on me. It was just like figuring out, you know, I always say I love, thrift stores versus a mall because a mall is telling you what they want you to wear and a thrift store you actually have to walk up to clothes and be like do i love this or do i hate this and you know like like make your own decisions and this actually ties back to one of the things about cults and one of the reasons people join cults is for clarity right in times of social turmoil these gurus pop up that tell us exactly what to do and give us clarity. And one of the things about me that I never realized was I kept just like, one of the reasons I wasn't fitting into America is because I kept just like putting on these personas, you know, I was like perfect student. Now I'm going to be perfect soldier. Um, and now I'm going to try to be perfect mom or perfect corp, whatever, you know? And finally it was the realization of just like, stop, like, who are you, right? Figure out yourself. Um, so good. Radical acceptance, all of that. Um, and it's definitely still a work in progress. You know, I think it's probably the work of our lifetimes. Um, mm. And, you know, a final thing that has been so, so significant for me related to trauma is, is telling the story. And so, you know, nothing can change the past. And, I don't even know if the triggers stop, right? I'm not there yet. I still get triggered. I still get taken into a basement with a pedophile, right? I still have these experiences. But one of the overwhelming things about uncultured is she's always alone, 
right? It's this, this little girl and then this young lieutenant, and she's just alone. And it's not until, you know, figuring out how to relate to other people that I kind of find my voice and learn to understand myself. But now with this book, you know, I've had tens of thousands of people read the story. And so now when these triggers happen to me, I'm still there, but I don't feel alone, right? Like I feel all of these people, you know, and it's like when people people contact me to say they're reading my book or a little comment on my TikTok that they just bought it. And it's like, I feel so humbled that you're willing to walk through this in such an intense story with me because it really does feel like every person that does it, you know, has this like healing impact on my life. Um, That's and then, you know, my my tangible part of that is then to say, we also talk about owning your story, but we don't necessarily talk about it in the context of, I took all the worst things that ever happened to me and put them in this book. And I own this story. Like, I make money now when people read it. And that's part of what has allowed me to slow down and to heal and to continue to, you know, live this life that I love. So that's, you know, also my plug to like any listeners that have ever thought about writing your story, telling your story. Um, it's not only owning it in the metaphorical sense for healing, but it's also like, you can also own a product that is your story that you can choose to profit off of. Um, and, you know, ultimately I had this moment when I was recording the audio um, which got recommended in the New York Times. And I'm realizing as I'm sitting there recording it, and it's one of the hardest things I've done to this day is record this audiobook in five days. And, but at the same time, I was sitting here like, I know I'm doing good at this because I'm a trained actress. And I'm using that training that they forced on me, that exploitation that they forced on me Literally, the cover is a picture of me being trafficked, but I'm using those skills to read this book for global distribution about this cult, about them, right? So it was like this very, like, I, I think, healing moment for me um, in, you know, and it says this in the book, but like often not, there's not a way over it. There's just a way through it. Um and I feel like now I, now I make money as the cult lady, right? Like I didn't get, I didn't get to choose to be an expert on horrible groups. I just kind of always had that happen. Um, but now it's a legit area of expertise, and I'm doing what I want with it. So awesome, Daniela! Awesome, and it sounds like a phenomenal book. I know I'll be buying the book, and before. The audience where they can where they can find the book and purchase it for themselves. That's that's great. Uh, what's your relationship with your mother like these days? Um, this is one of my most commonly asked questions. Um, it's good. Um, so my mother does end up leaving the cult. I don't want to give it away to you because um, it's a good part of the story. She leaves about a decade after me, at which point it's interesting because now I become essentially the mentor part of this relationship because I am somewhat of the guide for my parents through the world that especially my mom also knows nothing about. Um, 
And right here, I will say to anyone who's listening who has had a cultic experience, it usually takes you about a decade to get through that. And that was something I told my mom. It was like, to get yourself established, to get on your feet. Um, and she said that was helpful. Um, but, you know, the scary moment was when I decided to write the book. I had no idea if she was going to support me. Um, there's a, a similar thing on the military side. The, the man who's my mentor, who's, you know, the only sen- senior military man who's willing to have his name attached to the book, um, did stand by me in the end, but I didn't know that. Um, and I think this is relevant to talk about with healing, is that when we start healing out loud, often we, got, we get a lot fewer invites to family dinners um, because now we become trouble, right? And even sometimes when they do support you at the end, you didn't know that. So I still had to sort of make the decision to write this book, not knowing if I was going to lose that relationship with my mom. Um, I did unfortunately lose relationships with, with siblings and other family members because of it. Um, but, and then the other thing is I would say my mom remains to this day, the only adult who has given me a unqualified apology for my childhood. Um, and she's of all people, she's the least responsible for it. Um, but you know, she has made that decision that if it comes to her father who still runs the money or her daughter, then she's choosing her daughter. Um, and so that of course is, is really significant. Um, the, the cults is still in function today or did it dissolve? <sighs> kind of both. Um, in 2009, I think they realized that they were dying in their form um, which the way cults die is when they fail to retain or recruit the next generation. Um, and so they kind of were like, hey, that stuff we told you about uh, dropping out of the world, living by faith, not educating your children because Jesus was coming back. Just kidding. We actually don't know when he's coming back anymore. So you all should go get jobs. All these people are like 60 or 70 at this point and have been supporting this cult their whole lives. They all have about 12 children is probably the average. So like my stepfather is 71. Yeah, because my mom's 51. And he still has a 14-year-old. Like he's still raising little kids. Um, and they, so, so at this point, a lot of people were just like woke up and they were like, yeah, what? No, I'm out. Um, because they didn't go away. They were like, we'll still be here online to take your tithes and like give you Jesus's revelations. Um, So they still exist. There are about 1400 people, mostly around the world. My grandfather still runs the money. They still bring in over a million dollars a year. And, you know, um, yeah, they're still out there, but it's not the militaristic communes of 10,000 people all around the world that it was in the heyday of my childhood that's described in the book. Um, But I really do think the biggest con that the children of God got over on the world is that they ended in the 80s or 90s. And they didn't end, they just rebranded. And, um, you know, I mixed the term the family in there because the term is so important. But uh, 
by I don't call them the family, which is their chosen name. Because I'm like, no, you don't just get to rebrand and wash your slate clean. Like you are the children of God. And I think this is really relevant to organizations too. It's like when they supposedly change their ways, but they actually don't go back and fix any of the problems that made it that way. They just say, oh, we stopped doing this. Oh, we don't do this anymore. Like it doesn't fix it, right? The values are still the same. Um, Do you keep in contact with anyone else from the cult? Any other yeah, I definitely, I definitely have a, a large group of, you know, colleagues who are essentially like brothers and sisters to me because about 5,000 of us grew up, you know, in this life all around the world. Um, definitely some people are not happy about the book, but some people are like, you put our culture down. Um, you know, even though their experiences, of course, were different, it's still like, showing our culture, um, which I think is also true for military women. Our culture has rarely been written about. Um, but I'll tell you about my favorite cult friend. So she, um, or just, just cult story. So she was at 18 years old, noticed to be attractive and taken to the home of the then leader um, where she was like made by day to write speeches and, you know, get heavenly revelations for dissemination to the cults. And then of course, by night she was expected to be available. Um, she left the cults and she now works very high up in DC writing speeches for politicians. And I think that's the best, <laughs> like, like use of like taking your skills and, you know, transforming them into something um, that you can make money doing. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I would definitely say like we are a fractured generation and most of us hugely, hugely struggle and have struggled um, because of, you know, because of what they did to us and the way America is, we still don't have basically any recourse, unfortunately. So we are just kind of all trying to get our lives started. And, um, you know, really key thing for me was realizing I didn't need to hide my background and I could talk about it. And I feel like it's one of those lies that the cult tells you is that everyone on the outside world is evil. And if, if they know who you are, they're going to reject you. So kind of like cult level imposter syndrome. Um, and I part of why I spent so long just like trying to pass as the average perfect American as though that even exists. Um, <laughs> um, and finally just being like, you know what? This is, this is my background. Um, and part of this was really owning that like, it's not my shame, you know, like, I don't own any of their shame. Um, so I'm going to talk about it. And it's, yeah, I literally want like everyone to who hears my story to just know that it's like talking about your trauma. It is going to bring healing. It, it You don't have to go write a book about it. You don't have to make it your whole life, but like your 10 best friends should know about the major traumatic events in your life that affect who you are. And usually in doing that, you'll also find that you have a lot more best friends because being vulnerable with other people 
build stronger relationships, right? There's sort of this lie that you're going to judge me if you know my story. But in reality, like when I hear a story of someone's struggles, I don't judge them. I feel that I admire them, you know? Um, so turning that around a little bit sometimes, I think is just can be really key if you're if you're living scared that your trauma is going to drive everyone away. Um, well said. Well said. Yeah. Daniela, one final question for you, and this is something I ask each to receive our listeners with what I like to call a token of love, something that you think people need to hear right now in this moment as they continue on their journeys. <sighs> I think that we are living through a time of incredible polarization. Um, but one research shows that 90% of people eventually lose their cults. So if you are one of the many Americans who have lost their friends or family to this polarization, like keep up hope. Um, but also things get this crazy and get this polarized because we are pulling down social systems that don't work for everyone and trying to force new ones through. Um, and I think we're winning. Um, I think progress always wins. So I hope that's hopeful. Like, oh, beautiful. From a, from a cult perspective, I think they're in their end game right now and I think they're going to lose. There you go. Well said. I 100% agree. Thank you so much. But yes, and please tell the audience where they can find your book, social media, website, etc. Yes, so generally anywhere you buy books, Uncultures uh, is a major Macmillan book, so you can get it anywhere. Um, you, it is available digital, so like on ebook, it is available on audio. I did the audio, and it's available in hard copy. Um, and if you really like paperback, it's coming out in November in paperback. Um, and you can also find me at on TikTok. Um, so Daniela Mestinek Young, it's the whole name. Maybe we can do a link um, where I can I can usually be found knitting and talking about cult behavior and where we find it in the regular world. Because um, I'm writing a book now called The Culting of America about this very thing. Um, okay. So like not only buy the book, but please come join me for the conversation. Like, even if you don't buy the book, we can come like have really good conversations about groups. Um, and I learned so much through that as well. Excellent, Daniel. Thank you so much for being a guest here on the Hidden Gateway podcast. Uh, you have blessed the show and for that we are thankful. And to our audience, we hope you enjoy this episode of the Hidden Gateway podcast as much as I did. As always, remember to stay connected with us at hiddengateway.com. Shoot us an email at support at the Hidden Gateway. And thank you for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. This will conclude this week's episode. Until next time, stay positive, stay questioning, be loved, and be peace. The Hidden Gateway, ouch.